0: Hello everyone, sorry for the slight delay in getting things started tonight, but you're all very welcome. Uh, My name is Beth Hannan, I'm the Associate Director of the Forum, and if you don't know it, the Forum is an educational charity designed to bring academic philosophers and others into uh, the public limelight uh, to discuss the research. Because we're a charity, we rely on donations and uh, support which we get from the LSE and from our individual donors We're incredibly grateful for all of that. If you would like to be one of those really incredibly generous donors, you can do so by going to our website and finding our Just Giving page there. And your efforts will not be unrewarded. Uh, You'll find there um, a big archive of podcasts of our other events, as well as lots of articles written by academic philosophers on their research. Just a few housekeeping matters. If you could turn your phones on to silent so that they don't the evening. That would be great, but there's no need to turn off your phones completely. Please feel free to tweet along with me. Um, there's a hashtag there, LSEFEP. Um, I'll be tweeting, live tweeting the event, and um, feel free to do so yourselves. And uh, this is being recorded for a podcast, so when you ask a question, if you could wait for the roving mic to find you so your voice gets picked up on the recording, that would be fantastic. Okay, that's enough for me. I'll hand you over to Peter for tonight's event.
1: Well, good evening, everyone. Thanks very much uh, for coming along. Uh, My name is Peter Dennis um, from LSE in the Philosophy Department. We're delighted to have Professor John Braley uh, from the Government Department at LSE and also Dr. Cara Nine from University College Cork uh, in the Philosophy Department. Um, We're going to split our discussion into two main sections. Firstly, uh, talking about some of the historical context, uh, how the right to secede originated, and then we'll talk about some of the more political questions about the right to secede and what gives a country a right to secede. John is going to go first and talk us through some of the historical context, and then Kara will talk about some of the questions in political philosophy. Uh,
2: so, John, over to you. Over there. Didn't quite expect as many people as this, but uh, very nice to see. I don't want to talk about uh, the philosophical basis for any right to secession or the legal issues that may be to do with the right to secession. I simply want to talk about how on earth this rather strange idea came into existence historically. There have been many rebellions in human history, many attempts to break away from a larger state, and establish an independent, smaller state. And there have been many declarations that have accompanied such efforts. But secessionism, which I think includes the claim to the right to secession, is a very special way of justifying and seeking independence. So what I'm going to present here is an argument. It's not, I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but I always find it best to just present an argument because I don't like saying on the one hand, on the other hand. Secessionism, as I understand it, really combines three particular notions. First, the right to be independent. But secondly, you have to establish which is the group of people who have that right. And thirdly, you have to establish where is that right to be realised. So a right... A people who bear that right and a place to which that right should be applied. And I want to argue that this combination is a very modern idea. That it can be dated to the late 18th century, but that it never became generally significant in international relations until after the First World War. And that since the First World War, it has changed in very interesting ways that the way it was applied after 1918 is somewhat different from the way in which it was understood after 1945 and is yet again somewhat different after the collapse of the Soviet Union into the 1990s and coming up to our own time. So what I want to do is begin by mentioning a couple of, very briefly, a couple of declarations and a couple of movements that sought independence before the 18th century and argue that these are not secessionist movements as I've just uh, defined them. Then say something about that 18th century move in which a right to secession is definitely enunciated, but then why that didn't actually become a general practice and then why it did become a general practice after the First World War. I'll begin quite a long way back, 1320... be precise, the Declaration of Our Both. This is often invoked by modern Scottish nationalists as proof that Scottish nationalism has a long history that extends at least back to the early 14th century. I'm not going to go into details, I haven't got time. It's a fascinating declaration. It begins with a rather blood-curdling story of how many, many, many centuries ago the Uh, The Scots had come from the Black Sea, they had migrated huge distances, Uh, they had killed and expelled most of the other peoples who lived in what was then Scotland, and now they were here. But in fact, the Declaration barely establishes who the Scots are. The Declaration actually is three letters to the Pope at the time, one from the nobility, one from the clergy and one from King Robert, basically pleading with the Pope to help them out because King Edward's threatening them from England. They only talk in very particular terms about their own rights and privileges. Who the rest of the Scots are is unclear. They never invoke the idea of rights. They only invoke the idea of the privileges of the clergy, the barons, the nobles, and the king. And the territory is the territory within which these elites exercise these privileges. So this is a, a movement for greater independence, but not secessionism. Perhaps the most significant revolt against the imperial power before the 18th century, in the early modern period, was the revolt of the Dutch, the revolt of the Netherlands, against Spanish rule. But again, when you look at the language that's used here, the language is first of all about religion. The revolt began as some Protestant nobles resisting Philip of Spain's attempt to reimpose Catholicism uh, uh, in the area. Insofar as they complained about anything other than interference with their right to be Protestants, they complained about certain tax proposals and the interference with particular kinds of uh, privileges. And they weren't trying to get a particular territory independent. In the end, the Netherlands was simply the area that militarily became independent after uh, the, the fight. And Belgium was the area that failed to become independent. There's no language of rights. There's no universalist argument here, except possibly in terms of religion. There is... As with the Scottish Declaration, a rather mythical history, there's a reference to the Batavians who resisted Roman rule, um, but nobody really knows who the Batavians are or where they were to be found. And there is a reference to a chosen people, but the chosen people is a Protestant people. It's not defined in national terms. It's defined rather like they imagined the Israelites were a chosen people in the Old Testament. So lots of breakaway movements, I've just taken two, which are often invoked by modern nationalists as as if they are about trying to establish the right of a nation-state, but I would argue that they're not trying to do this. The moment where most clearly the right to secession is established is in one of the most famous documents in um, world history, the Declaration of Independence of 1776. First of all unlike say the declaration of arbroath this isn't letters to the pope this is addressed to mankind they are actually seeking they want to express their view to get the opinion of mankind how they quite get the opinion of mankind i don't know they're really actually addressing the french crown because they want support from france the declaration consists really it's a kind of almost a logical document. It starts with those most those famous sentence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And that is what the purpose of government is. Government is instituted so people can realise these rights. So there's a universal right, and it's attached to the notion of what government is for. The second and longest part of the document, which nobody knows is to enumerate all the terrible things the British government and even the British people have done to the inhabitants of the 13 colonies. The first is, you like, the major premise. The second, the grievances, is the minor premise. And then Thomas Jefferson, who was trained in classical Greek philosophy, draws the conclusion, because these rights, major premise, have been abused by the British, minor premise the British no longer have a right to govern us, we have a right to establish our own government. And that was the conclusion they drew. So the declaration isn't just a declaration, it is a very tight argument about a universal right which establishes for a particular group of people, the citizenry, in a particular place, the 13 colonies, the right to establish their own government. Not only that, this kind of arguing about universal rights and government being based on whether it realises universal rights of course continues in the French Revolution. The Declaration of Rights of Man and Citizen is not a secessionist claim because this is being applied to an existing territorial state, but nevertheless it has that universal implication. So you would think that's when the right to secede begins. But in fact, in historical terms it doesn't become significant. The French Revolution is crushed. The restoration after the defeat of Napoleon means that you go back to the old ways of thinking about government in monarchical terms, in religious terms, and so on. The new states that are formed, and a few new states are formed, in Europe in the 19th century, one thinks, for example, of Greece, are not justified with this universalist language, but particular concerns such as the right of the Greeks, meaning Christian, Orthodox, Greek Christians, to be free of the rule of Muslims. And indeed, the most important nation-state formations of the 19th century are in the opposite direction from separation, the unification of Germany, the unification of Italy, and of course, in the most bloody war fought in the U.S. In history, the denial of the right to secession in the American Civil War. By and large, people who represented small groups, small nations, didn't demand secession, partly because they just didn't think it was possible. They demanded things like language rights, cultural autonomy. Sometimes they talked about a more federalist system, say with Czechs within the Habsburg Empire, but not secession. The turning point, I think, can be dated... I like dates between the 31st of December 1917 and the 8th of January 1918. Two momentous events have happened in 1917, a Bolshevik revolution in Russia and the entry of the United States of America into the war on the side of uh, of Britain, France and Russia. Um, On the 31st of December 1917, Trotsky and the leading Bolsheviks, gave a speech in addressed to the allied governments and their peoples. He said, we have given self-determination to people under Russian rule, to Finland, to the Ukraine. Why don't you give it to the people that you hold under subjection in Egypt, in Ireland, in the East Indies, in Indochina and so on, in India? The speech was translated within 24 hours into English, And we know that it was read within the next two days by David Lloyd George, Prime Minister of Britain, and Woodrow Wilson, President of the United States of America. On the 5th of January, Lloyd George gave a speech in which he referred to the rights of people in the the peace that was to come, the rights of people to self-determination. On the 8th of January, Woodrow Wilson gave a speech now famously known as the 14 Points, He didn't actually use the phrase national self-determination. That would come in another speech in February. But his program is all based on the right of self-determination. This, therefore, established the basis for, again, a right to secede. But it was very, very different from the American Declaration of Independence. It didn't ground it in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In fact, the interesting thing is that the USA prepared extremely carefully for the peace that was to come. They had over 150 experts who drew up 2,000 reports, thousands of maps, because they wanted to find out where particular kinds of people lived to decide who should have the right to their own government. They used the ethnic principle, some combination of language, history, blood, and so on. In many ways, an ethnic principle that they applied to understanding ethnic relations in their own United States of America. And the principle was applied, and a whole bunch of new states, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Yugoslavia and the like, were created. The problem is, of course, that they also created some 25 million of ethnic minorities in those countries. An ethnic majority, an ethnic minority. They therefore took a further step in which they established minority rights, so that... Germans, for example, had minority rights in Czechoslovakia. It also justified population transfers, 1923, massive population transfers between Greece and Turkey. But above all, it had established the right to secession. And this had a dynamizing effect throughout the world. You find in China, in Korea, in India, in Egypt... Mass movements demanding the same right of national self-determination. You find Irish delegates coming to Versailles and saying, "Just a minute, why, don't, why doesn't Ireland have a right of national self-determination?" Uh, Ho Chi Minh, the man who was to lead the Vietnam to independence, mm-hmm. makes the same point. It's sometimes been called, in one book, the Wilsonian moment. The interesting thing is that. It, The Soviet Union, the new Soviet Union, also used this ethnic principle not to create the right to independent states, but to form the republics, the Soviet Socialist Republics, which are all named after a nationality, the Ukraine, Georgia, and so on. So the bearer of the right now is not a body of citizens, but an ethnic nation. The big problem, of course, with universal principles, and it may be something that... We'll hear about on the philosophical side is when do you stop applying them? Once you've established this line, right, how on earth do you stop it being escalated further and further and further? The Allies, in part, just used main force. You know, movements in India and Egypt were simply crushed. They also used certain arguments, for example, civilizational level. Uh, people had to have a certain level of civilization before they could. Uh, merit independence. This justifies, for example, what was called the mandate system. Lenin argued you could only have national liberation if you were advancing towards international socialism. But in any case, with the rise of aggressive nationalism in Germany and Italy and Japan, the issue of national self-determination became purely academic. It was only put back on the table after 1945. Now, 1945 was very different from 1918. 1918. The European powers, both triumphant and defeated, were completely exhausted. And there was a new balance of power between the Soviet Union and the United States of America. So within Europe, the USA didn't have the idealism of Woodrow Wilson after 1918. They had a very sort of geopolitical pragmatism (coughs) about making sure that the bits of Europe that were not controlled by the Soviet Union would be stable. They also take the view that there have been terrible mistakes made in 1918. This ethnic principle to justify the right to secession led to ethnic conflict, ethnic cleansing, um, was just a really bad idea, and they weren't going to go down that road again. But another important step, where where a new concept of self-determination would apply, was the world beyond Europe. Because both the USA and the Soviet Union theoretically denounced imperialism and insisted that the European powers should give up their overseas colonies. This was pushed by the Soviet Union. The USA, in a sense, didn't really like it, but felt obliged to go along with it because it was, in, in many ways, it, it went along with their own 1776 declaration and the formation of themselves. <coughs> And so the opening article of the Charter of the United Nations includes a reference to self-determination. And finally, in 1960, the UN Decolonization Declaration also includes a reference to self-determination. So now the right to secession is to be applied to the European overseas colonies. But they had rejected the ethnic principle because of its dangerous way of putting people into groups who would then be intolerant of one another. And they were very worried about using any democratic principle because if any body of citizens got together and said we want a new state, this would seem to justify the right to a new state. How could they limit this right? And they did it through an ingenious way, which I call the sub-state. That is to say, they identified some kind of political unit which wasn't yet a state, could be seen as a kind of state in waiting, the colonial state. So as a consequence, the way in which decolonization came about was through making places like Nigeria or Kenya or whatever um, the new bearers of of this right. They then tried immediately to limit the right to secede to that. So once the decolonization procedure had had pretty much gone and swept through Africa and Asia, <clears throat> the argument was, stop. The sovereignty of the state now trumped any idea of a new national self-determination. Julius Nyerere once described the Organisation of African Unity as a trade union of African states, whose job it was to stop any other African states ever being formed. <clears throat> the Cold War, in many ways, enabled this freezing And there was only one important case of secession, successful secession, in the years that followed. That was Bangladesh. Um, And in part, that's because Pakistan was just an impossible state too far with its west and east division. So for a long time, the right to secession, again, was suppressed until the next big upheaval, the collapse of the Soviet Union and the collapse of Yugoslavia. Now, the way the international community went about reorganising after those collapses was the same principle that they used with European decolonisation. The sub-state. So the different republics of the Soviet Union would be the new nation-states. And pretty much that is what's happened. The republics of Yugoslavia, Serbia... Slovenia, Croatia, would also become the new independent states. The problem is it didn't prove possible this time round to keep it confined to that. So, a particular problem was Kosovo. Kosovo was a part of the Republic of Serbia. So on the sub-state principle, Kosovo did not deserve should not merit an independent state of its own. But on the other two principles that we've encountered, Kosovo does seem to merit a state of its own. On the ethnic principle, it is majority Albanian, and therefore would seem to merit a state of its own, possibly joined with Albania. And it was quite clear that a majority of the populations on the democratic principle, it would also merit a state of its own. But... In fact, the international community has found it really difficult to handle the issue of Kosovo, because the fear it has is that once you establish that, it's a precedent for others. So, for example, in Bosnia-Herzegovina, a different principle has been found, which is some kind of autonomy within the nominal single state of Bosnia-Herzegovina, particularly for the Serb region. It's interesting that when Putin's Russia has decided it wants to take control of some other bit beyond Russia, it has done it often just in de facto ways. So South Ossetia, Transnistria, these are what are called de facto states. They have no international recognition at all, but they are effectively independent of the states, Moldova and uh, Georgia, that were supposed to control them. The Crimean was not based on the right to secession. It was based upon bringing the Crimea back into where it should have always really belonged, Russia, if only Khrushchev hadn't been stupid enough to give it away in the 1950s. And also, the USA has started to think about these things differently. The USA increasingly doesn't like the idea of democratic decision-making because that's too changeable and now is completely sceptical about the idea of any essential ethnic identity. So what it focuses on is human rights. It's interesting that a lot of the running after the collapse of Yugoslavia was made by the human rights desk within the State Department, not by the Balkan specialists uh, at all. And they see the idea of defending human rights no longer through the right to secede, but in other ways. Um, Intervention, legal systems, and so on. So, I think I've got to stop at this point. Just some very tentative conclusions. Break away our regional resistance movements throughout history, but until 1776, not based on the right to secede. The US Declaration of Independence in 1776 and the French Revolution that followed did establish the reasoning behind the right to secede, and the USA was the first historic example of that. But this was not made into a general practice within international relations through the 19th century. It's first implemented because of the way in which the USA and the new Soviet Union talk about national liberation or national self-determination as a right immediately after the First World War. But they understand that right as an ethnic principle. And that was the basis on which Central and East Central Europe was reorganised in 1918 to 1920. And that was the way the Soviet Union, in a slightly different way, was organised. But by and large, this ethnic principle would be completely discredited through the 1920s and 30s, particularly, of course, by Nazism, which raised the ethnic principle to a barbaric imperialist level. So after 1945, the people, particularly the USA and the Soviet Union, who were remaking uh, the political geography of the world, were determined not to repeat those mistakes. But they wanted to establish a right of secession for European overseas colonies. So they had to find some other principle, which they found in the form of the sub-state. That was used again in the first phase with the collapse of the Soviet Union. The international community remains hostile, suspicious of any universal right to secede and constantly tries to clamp down on it in the name of the sovereignty of the existing states. And they've tried to find other kinds of arrangements. Finally, and this might be something that again is approached philosophically, is this just rhetoric? Are these powers simply using this language, ethnicity, democratic decision-making, just as a convenient way of doing whatever it is in their interest to do at that particular time? Well, obviously, power and interest really matter. But this language has a power of its own. This language, to some extent... First of all, the USA did not want the notion of self-determination to be in the UN Charter in 1945. But in a way, because its own foundation was based on that right, it couldn't resist that right. And once that right was there in a document like the foundation document of the United Nations, it could be used in all kinds of ways. And secondly, the language is linked to the way people see the world. So that Woodrow Wilson merely did see the world in terms of distinct ethnic groups. And therefore, when he thought about how it should be reorganised, he saw it in those terms. Roosevelt... And Truman really did see the world in terms of a pragmatic balance of power between themselves and the USSR, and that affected the way they saw it. And Americans in the era of Clinton really did see the world through the eyes of multiculturalism, which meant they were suspicious of any kind of ethnic principle, uh, and human rights, which meant that they wanted to entrench human rights in, in various kinds of ways. So... This right is not just a philosophical principle, not just a rationalization for power interests. It is a genuinely important idea, but it is also, I would argue, a modern idea. Thank you.
1: Well, thanks very much, Jean, for taking us through that in such a clear way. We're going to pause for a moment uh, to take some questions from the audience. So if you've got a question, please raise your hand and wait for the roving mic to come to you uh, because we want your questions to be uh, on the podcast. Uh, There's a question here at the front.
3: Uh, Yeah, you mentioned uh, the importance of uh, this concept of the sub-state. Uh, I wanted to ask if, in your criteria as a historian, uh, territories like Scotland or Catalonia would be uh, a superstate. state. That's a good question.
2: Um, I think almost certainly certain kinds of nationalists could argue that they were. I mean, Scotland, for example, has an independent legal system, an independent educational system. It was, of course, an independent state until 1707. Um, Of course, it then voted to become part of, uh, in the Act of Union, um, well, its corrupt parliament voted for it to to join uh, the union. Um, So in that sense, it has sub-state qualities. So I think they, they probably could. And one of the interesting things, as I understand it, I don't understand the Spanish situation all that well, but one of the big... But the big arguments is there is even when they move towards various kinds of autonomy Catalonia always tries to get a slightly higher form of autonomy from any of the other regions like Andalusia or, or Galicia uh, and that is in a sense to try and distinguish themselves from those other cases nevertheless in another sense they're not sub-states the point about the uh, colonial states is that they were I mean this is what made it actually quite easy for the European decolonization. These were overseas colonies. So they are physically completely separate from the imperial core. Uh, And therefore, they have their own boundary. uh, And that boundary really means something. People, you know, it's not like when you can just drive from England to Scotland. You can't just uh, drive from England to Nigeria. Um, So... They, they called them colonial states as well. Now, in a way, that's, that's a ridiculous thing because that's a contradiction in terms. A state is a sovereign unit and a colony is not a sovereign unit, so a colonial state is just a, actually a meaningless term. But nevertheless, it was a term that was used all the time. Um, and it meant, of course, that it was easy for political groups who were physically detached and often, of course, racially and ethnically distinct from the imperial core to organise... In these ways, but above all, I think it was just a convenient principle yeah right at
4: the back uh, given that most cessations or, or you know, attempts to split off have a sort of a violent prehistory um, and, and are very rarely kind of handed on a plate or voluntarily, and, and given that most states would prevent bits of it to split off, how much does this really? matter. I mean, you you said it's not just rhetoric, but isn't it really the power relations and the kind of, that really determine it? And then it's kind of a sort of a post rationalization that that, that is used through the language. And of course, you know, cultural, whatever, or kind of uh, political sensitivities would play into this. But isn't it really the kind of the, yeah, the power structure and the power balance that ultimately really decides who can be independent and who can't?
2: I think you're right. I mean, I think mainly uh, we can normally expect the large existing state to resist any effort by a part of it to become independent. We can normally expect that. Not, it doesn't always work. There have been, uh, think of Czechoslovakia, where there was a so-called velvet divorce. Um, so there have been a few cases where both sides decide they don't want to have a, a bloody battle about it, um, and I, th- I think a key factor, however, in the power relationship is not the power relationship between the two units in dispute. It's a broader set of power relationships. So, for example, the, in my, my youth, the bloodiest case of a, a, a real secessionist movement with real power and force <clears throat> was the Biafran movement in Nigeria uh, and huge casualties. Uh, but that didn't fail primarily because of the strength of the larger unit that was resisting it, it failed because no major external power was prepared to support it. And part of the reason no major power was prepared to support it is precisely this fear of the escalating principle. Once you admit that a, a state can be can secede because it simply wants to secede, then you have opened up a Pandora's box. In fact, that was exactly the phrase that the Secretary of State. Lansing used to Woodrow Wilson when Woodrow Wilson talked about national self-determination. He said, you have just created a destabilising principle. Um, So, and that's always been the argument that's used. And therefore, I would say that this actually shows the power of the principle. The international community so hates it, but nevertheless it cannot deny that it can be used in documents like the UN Charter, the declaration, the decolonisation declaration of 1960. But I agree, it is mainly a question of of force. The other thing I would say, as a a kind of beady-eyed, low-minded historian, a lot of secessionist movements are actually not about secession at all. They say they are, but actually they're about a way of forcing the central government to give them some more concessions, more development funds, more local autonomy. And uh, they don't actually want to secede at all because... Actually, they they, they suspect that uh, on their own, life would actually be even worse than it it is now. But but I agree, there's there's, there's a lot of of this going on. But the interesting thing is that we have this language. And we only have it, I would argue, since 1918. And that language, to some extent, changes the dynamics of the conflicts.
5: Gentleman at
1: the back there.
3: Yes, uh, someone from former Yugoslavia, especially Serbia, and you've been talking about Kosovo. Right. I mean, there is a cost of independence to those who seek it. Um, However, there has been a huge cost in the case of Kosovo, I would suggest, to the whole world in terms of international community. It is quite normal, I, I would suggest, that people want independence, in this case, the Kosovo Albanians. But here we had 19 NATO states who bombed themselves into Kosovo, and in the process, clean breached the UN Charter, something which they had all solemnly signed. This is UK, US, Germany, everyone. So the question as to how much the signature is actually worth to a document is seriously raised. The whole issue with Russia and the rise of Putin is due to what happened in Kosovo. Uh, It is very unusual that such a cost should be paid from anyone outside the Balkans. In addition to that, in the case of Kosovo, the bombing stopped because of a UN Resolution 1244 that was also signed by the belligerents. That, too, was flagrantly ignored. The reason, I mean, this is very serious now, when outside powers to such an extent actually involve themselves and we've had the Crimea. We are close to a third world war if this is not stopped somehow. In other words, what is the signature of the UN member states when they can so clearly and openly breach the UN Charter?
2: Well, I don't want to get into an argument about the, the pros and cons of the, the way the Kosovo issue has been handled.
3: The cost of independence.
2: Yeah, I, 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 I agree. What, what interest. To come back, though, over to the right to secede, I I think I'm right, you may know more about it than me, but I think I'm right to say that at no point during the actual violence was the issue of Kosovo becoming an independent state raised. And in fact, it was quite some time after the actual violence, um, is it something like 10 years, that the matter was referred to the International Court of Justice for an opinion. Um, And even there, it was a very cautious referral It was not saying, is Kosovo entitled to be independent? It was actually very narrowly focused on the issue of, is the declaration of independence a violation of international law? And a huge number of opinions were presented there. And and for me, therefore, what's, what's interesting here is that although, and we can talk about the rights and wrongs of how NATO forces behaved, although NATO forces undoubtedly did go into Kosovo, did bomb Kosovo, they were really very reticent about talking about the right to secede, and precisely because the right to secede for something that can't be regarded as a, as a sub-state is regarded as such a dangerous principle. Now, eventually, they've moved towards that principle because since the what was it? The International Court of Justice convened in 2008, and they gave its opinion in 2010, and even then, it was a divided opinion, and I think it gave eight different opinions. Uh, over a course of time, Uh, even then it's been a kind of trickle process by which uh, de facto uh, a recognition of independence has happened. So leaving aside the issue of uh, the violence and the rights and wrongs in terms of the actual conflict, what I find interesting is that even those who supported Kosovo did not wish to support the right to secede.
1: Thanks very much, John. I'm sure we could go on for a bit longer, but we want to uh, hand over to Kara now, who's going to talk to us from a more philosophical angle uh, about some of the normative questions of what grounds uh, the right to secede. So, Kara, over to you.
6: Okay, yeah. Um, thank you. And some of the themes that I'm going to talk about um, overlap with what John just said, um, in particular the concept of self-determination. So I I think it's important um, philosophically uh, and just to get your head around what are the moral questions involved here. Um, And we're thinking about secession is to think about why do we think any state has a right to be independent? Why do we think Britain has a right to be independent? Why do we think... Uh, Germany has a right to be independent, what's behind kind of the normal cases that we take for granted, and if we understand those cases, right, maybe we'll be able to understand um, when those things uh, seem to appear with some other group, then, then, you know, then then maybe a better case for secession can be made there. It turns out, though, that um, trying to figure out why a state has a right to be independent is also kind of confusing, right? It's, it's also uh, paradoxical. And um, so what I want to share with you then is just some of the philosophical problems, some of the moral problems that are at the heart of these questions. Uh, and I'm not, unlike um, uh, John, I'm going to be more Socratic about this. So instead of arguing for my my position, uh, I'm just going to leave you with the problems, okay? Uh, and, and see what you have to say about them. So one question with... Um, the right of self-determination is that in the context that we're talking about it now, it applies to a group, right? And um, the right of self-determination, it comes with some information. So when we talk about self-determination, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, when we talk about self-determination, we're usually talking about two different kinds of rights, that we want to come together. One kind of right is the right to uh, have internal institutions that make it possible for our people to rule themselves. So you don't want to give the right of self-determination to just some random group of people, right? Um, they have to actually be capable of ruling themselves. So they have a right and we could even say a duty to coordinate with each other in order to rule themselves in a, a minimally decent way, at least, right? We want, we want it to be a just state. Um, the other part of self-determination is that they have an, a right against external influence, and so that's what we usually mean when we're talking about the right of self-determination. So they have a right not to be dominated by external powers in their decision-making processes. So we have these, these two components of self-determination, and I think both are important. Right. So um, the first one, the internal one, it gives us a clue to what sort of group are we we thinking has the that will have a claim, a moral claim, to the right of self-determination, and then the external part tells us what we, what we do about that claim, right, or what other people have to do about that claim. Okay, so one of, one of the one of the uh, the problems or puzzles, I guess is better way to put. One of the puzzles is to figure out who is a member of the group. Okay. Um. Now, remember that we're talking about this in the context of, of figuring out why should, be there, why should there be states in the first place, right? Or why should we draw a border in one place rather than the other? Who, who should uh, be the members of those states? Because we're not taking anything for granted. Who should be a member of the group? And there are different ways that we try to answer these questions, um, and all of them have their problems, right? So that's why I'm <laughs> saying I'm leaving, I'm leaving the problems with you. I think the first thing that we fall back on is uh, people within a territory, okay? So the people who are in Scotland right now count as the Scottish people, and they get the right to secede. Um, or the people that are in uh, Quebec, Quebec, right? The Quebecois sometimes um, say that they want to secede from Canada. So the people who (laughs) reside in Quebec. uh, But, right, this is problematic because it's circular. If we're trying to decide, right, what territory the people should get or if they should get a territory, we can't refer to the territory itself in order to explain who the people is, right? Or who the people, who the members of the, uh, the people are. Um, so just referring to territory, it's just going to give you a circular argument. It's, it's not going to go anywhere, at least initially, right? Um, we have to go further, at least. Now, the other two possibilities um, both have their problems. And I think that part of the problem is, with both of these views is the way that philosophers tend to think about them and the way that we like for our moral arguments to be made. We like for our moral arguments to be determinate, right? Um, and we like for them to apply clearly right in different cases and so we've taken up um, two different things that we think are very important and um, on one side it's identity and the other side it's freedom of choice and then and, and built two camps for trying to determine the, the membership of the group out of these these two different moral positions so in the first, uh, the first side, right, it's, it's people who share a common identity. They're the group members. So people who are British, who um, share the common identity of, Brit- of being British or share the common identity of being Scottish. Right? Um, they make up the group. But very quickly, right, in these uh, cases of national identity, uh, it devolves into a kind of uh, the, the same sort of problems that the ethnic um, that the ethnic proposals uh, bring up, and that they create second-class citizens. So if there are people within the territory, so territory is still a part of it, right? So if there are people within the territory um, that is claimed by this national group who don't, um, aren't recognized as sharing that common nationality, then they become second-class citizens. So there are worries about the nationalist view. Okay, that's the identity side. So well, what about just freedom of choice? Right? Why can't we have a democratic decision making process in order to decide who the members of the group are? Okay you see the problem with that proposal right? Who gets to be a part of the, the decision making process the democratic decision making process to decide who the the relevant group is right? um, so we get another uh, circular uh, uh, circular argument there um, in that uh, the problem with democracy is you have to know who's a member first before you're going to get the democratic processes going. So just referring to democracy itself is not going to get you very far in order to figure out who is a member of the group. Um, and so there's another there's another option uh, it, that refers to freedom of choice and that is what we call a social contract. Right? Um, and this imagines a group, a political group, as being something like a club. We know if you're a member if you've joined. So if you've come, if you've paid your membership dues, right, if you can carry your membership card, then you're a member of the club. And if you don't have a a membership card, then you're not a member of the club, right? Um, So we can just simply say, look, if you've joined, you're a member. If you haven't joined, then you're not a member. Okay. Um, There are I think that this is an elegantly, uh, it's it's elegantly put, right? Um, And it doesn't run into some of the problems that the other views uh, run into. But um, one thing that social contract theorists usually stress is that the the moment of joining has to be a real moment. You have to have a a real choice there. And that means that you have to have genuine options. Do you want to be British? Do you want to be Irish? Do you want to be Scottish? So you have to have a real choice, uh, and in the context of thinking about political groups, that just isn't true for for a lot of the population. There's no point in their lives where they join, right? And uh, in the sense that they really have a, a genuine choice to join or to join this group or to join that group. You just are sort of raised, right, to be what you are, um, and, and so you get this. You get attention, right? You get attention between the uh, freedom of choice theorists and the identity theorists. It's like oh, you never, you never have like a free choice to join. You just kind of become British. You just kind of, but that makes it seem like you're referring to the identity view. But then you don't like the identity view because you get these sort of worries about about treating people who aren't quite like you as second-class citizens. Um, so I'm I'm going to leave it. Right there. These are these are the options. These are um, the philosophical options that we have so far, right? In terms of determining who is a member of the group, um, and all of them, uh, so far, are problematic. <laughs> I, mean, I can say more, but I'm going to I'm going to leave it at that point. I'm going to just leave it at that point for you guys.
1: Great. Thanks so much, Cara. Well, then at this point. Well, then, at this point, we will take some further questions uh, from the audience, um, particularly about this question that Cara's just been addressing, about these, uh, uh, the normative and philosophical um, aspects of, of the right to secede.
6: Maybe somebody has a solution.
1: <laughs> There's a solution at the front.
4: All right. <laughs> um, would it, wouldn't we tackle the question very differently if we ask about the right to be an independent state or the right to secede. Because if we take the case of these territories that want to be part of another existing state, like or want to be reunited with someone else, if we take uh, Crimea with Russia, um, or for instance the case of Belgium, in which most of Flemish and Walloon, in case of, of separations, want to join on one side the Netherlands and the other side the French. Um, if we take the case in Normandy where the few marginal uh, nationalists are just wondering why well, are we not part of the same political entity than the Channel Islands there are, there are Normans as well, we are Normans so if we talk about the right to secede isn't it just more about we are not part of the right and political entity we should be with other people and it's not about the um, as it is for the independent state of governing itself or, or like self-determination It's just we we are not matching with those uh other people we are sharing a government with
6: okay yeah that's a really good question um i and um one way that we could spell out what you're trying to say. It's like we're not we're not with the right people. Is as a kind of uh, tweaking of the identity view, <laughs> to put it. Say so like, I just um, I I hold certain beliefs and values, and these beliefs and values match more with this group than with that group. Uh, so it's not it's trying to divorce the I've of nationalism from ethnicity and just get it down to like. Uh, according to what values do I want to be ruled? Right, I want to be ruled with um, um, uh, with my uh, the values that I share with my common Russians, right, and not with uh, not, not with these other people. Um, the problem with that view, though, is similar to the problem with the nationalist views in that um, you still have you still have a territorial question, and so say sixty percent of your population wants to go with Russia, and 40% wants to go with um, uh, it's Ukraine, right? I'm horrible, <laughs> I'm horrible. <laughs> My field of expertise is territory, right? Um, so uh, the, then the question is, how who, who gets to decide, right? Um, is it the 60%, you can drag the 40% into it, or are you gonna reach some sort of uh, compromise? Um, the other interesting thing about this question, though, is why do we limit it to just the people who live in Crimea to make the decision? This is a part of the democratic problem. Why don't we have all of Russia and Crimea make the decision or all of Ukraine and Crimea make the decision, which I think is what they did, isn't it? Um, or the Russia, Ukraine. Why don't we just have the whole globe vote on uh, the way we want our, our groups to be set up? Um, so it's... It, I think that you need to first figure out the way that geographical issues feature into the way that we want our groups to look. Uh, And then you can settle some of these questions. It's a hard problem, though.
1: There's a question here.
7: Thank you. Uh, So you guys referred specifically to a group – you gave, like, two perspectives, one of them based on, like, Democratical Party, like how were a group of collective – based on their nationality, of their ethnicity, of their skin color, religion, or anything, they tried to take collective decisions. And you also made the statement within historical terms, meaning 100 years ago, or 50 years ago, many nation states uh, had some particular idea of how to create their own identity, how to create their laws the constitutions, their foreign services, and so on. My question is, do you see a rise uh, within individuals that they don't see themselves, their identity, or their shared values regarding specific nation? And my second question is, do you see a rise of those specific individuals identifying themselves according more to metropolis or more to cities instead of the nation-state, meaning that they prefer to be from London than from the UK, or they prefer being from New York uh, than from an agrarian poor uh, country like the United States is, within its overwhelming population? Thank you.
6: I'll say something briefly, and I don't know if you want to come in, too. Um, I think one problem with having a, a, sort of um, spokespeople for your nation is that they're usually going to be speaking for the – I don't know about urban versus non-urban, but they're always, almost always going to be talking for the powerful majority. Right? And so they want for the, the – and this is because people who don't look like them – are not going to be counted as part as, as part of the nation, right? Or don't uh, think like them. Are not going to be part as count as part of the nation. So they want the nation to look like them. right? Um, and so if they've got the power to uh, say this is what our nation is, they're going to say the nation looks like me. Um, and I think that's a problem that everybody should pay attention to when they're looking at nationalist politics. Right? Does, uh, is this per, spoke? spokesperson saying um, that the nation looks like them? Or are they really speaking for the for the people? I don't know if you want to say. He had kind of a historical
2: question. Um, well, I had some questions to you as well, actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the historian in me always... I love listening to the philosophical discussions, but I always think they're presented in these universal terms as though as if, as if people always had these discussions. And, and I don't think people always did have these discussions. So one thing it's worth asking is, what is the particular situation in which people have these kinds of philosophical discussions? So does it assume certain things about the world, which lots of people at lots of times never assumed? So, for example, does it assume the world is divided up completely between states? does it assume that states are clearly defined territorial entities? Does it assume that the state matters for most people? Your point about, you know, New York or whatever. Now, I would argue that uh, most of humankind, for most of time, has not lived in a world where they thought the world was divided into states, where they were clear that there was a line, and on this side you're on this state, on that side you're on that state, Uh, or that it really mattered, Um, And in fact, there's still large parts of the world where these things are not the case. So-called failed states, border zones, uh, and so on. So uh, one question is, you know, what I find interesting is, at what point did the world change so we actually could have this philosophical discussion? Can we historically locate the philosophical discussion? Just a couple of other things that struck me. One is, I was trying to map your principles onto the ones I talked about, the ethnic principle is the identity principle. The, the sub-state principle is the territory principle. The democratic decision-making is the freedom of choice principle. Um, and they're all dangerous. Uh, and everybody tries to limit them as far as possible. But one thing I hadn't thought of, um, your point about the internal principle, the inter- you know the, you, the capacity to actually form a state. Of course, this became a very important argument for not giving people self-determination. So In 1918-19, a series of mandates were set up in the Middle East, for example. So Syria and the Lebanon became League of Nations mandates under French control, and Iraq and Palestine became League of Nations mandates under British control. And what mandate meant was they were not yet ready. And so what the colonial powers always argued was the maturity argument the, these people are not quite ready, might be a hundred years before they're really ready. Um, Meanwhile, we'll work at trying to make them ready. Um, Now, it can just look like a self-serving argument, but of course it also has a degree of truth in it. Sometimes people are not ready. Sometimes, in fact, the imperial power has made sure they're not ready. Sometimes it actually makes them even less ready, for example, by dividing Hindus against Muslims in, Mm -hmm. in India. Uh, And so on. But nevertheless, I mean, it it is a powerful argument. Sometimes, of course, the argument is they'll never be ready, because they're racially inferior. And you can't expect those people to ever. So Wilson had another set of states that would never be ready, uh, aboriginals and and, and the like, Pacific Islands and so on, they could never be granted in. So there is a danger that every one of these philosophical principles can actually become a political club that one side, for self-interested reasons, uses to, to, to beat the other side with. So I want to let Cara
1: respond to some of that and perhaps, if, if you like, also comment on some of the things that, that John said, uh, if it's if it's relevant.
6: Yeah, um, I don't think I can respond to everything that you just said, but while you were talking, this um, relates to one thing you were just saying. I, I realized both, both philosophically, and part of the reason that um, philosophers obsess about it is because this is a fairly new topic in philosophy. Philosophers didn't really think about territorial rights at all uh, until about say, 15 years ago. So uh, I think that we're approaching things simply because that's how you start these kinds of projects. Um, But also politically, I think, especially with the division of Africa, that people, when they talk about territory and they talk about statehood, they're obsessed with states and they're obsessed with borders and they want there to be A state here and it have a clear border there so we know where when we're in the state and when we're not in this state Um, and this seemed you're the expert on it but it seemed like a bad fit for Africa to divide it into states in the first place and then have clear borders in the second place Uh, and so um, I think thinking outside of that box is going to be a really part of progressing forward right and making sure that political institutions actually match what works for people which is what we all want, right? We want our political institutions to work for us. They don't quite work yet, so we're trying to we're trying to get there, right? We're trying to change them so they get there. Um, and so, I mean, that's that's you know, uh, started to an answer to your position. I did want I do want to point out though that um, I think that there's a lot of really interesting work done on fuzzy borders uh, and that we could learn a lot, including about how to define the group on fuzzy borders. And uh, the work that I've done recently has been on international rivers. And international rivers are great examples of fuzzy borders. I mean, it's it's, kind of not clear, right, which jurisdiction you're in, um, and who has rights regarding what and what the decision-making procedures are and stuff and sometimes I wish like why don't you just call the area around the river right not not one state or the other it's just a sort of miss sort of uh, you know crosshatch of a state over or one over the other and then and that would be a more accurate description of what actually goes on with international rivers uh, and and embracing that idea of messiness might be a lot more helpful for us than being obsessed with with clearly drawing borders uh, and, and so I do. I do agree. I think that's a way forward.
1: Right. Lots of lots of questions. Uh, there's a lady in the second from back row, over to the, some more to the right.
0: Hi. Um. I think sort of move, uh, going along with the point that John was making. Um, I was wondering if a lot of the issues philosophically and politically around this area are to do with, because the world is currently completely divided up into states, and this may be a purely hypothetical question, but if, I don't know, some volcanic island arose in international waters and some people decided to go there and start living there, would we still have the same philosophical and political issues, do you think, around this, or would it be a lot simpler? <laughs> I, I've
6: actually thought about this. <laughs> I think that's definitely one for you in that case. <laughs> yes, <laughs> desert islands are our business. Yes, um, uh, I, I do think a lot of these same issues would come up because what it means to be a state in our current system of state rights is to be recognized by other states as a state, and so you're going to get a repeat of these same questions. There's a difference between state territory and property, right? Um, and so if there is a volcanic island that suddenly came up somewhere, you might be able to claim it as your property. Uh, and, and you could say, well, it's a property, and I'm going to declare my property rights as being under, you know, whatever state you choose. Or you could try and say, like, I'm an independent state now, but you'd have to convince every other independent state to recognize you as an independent state. And that's when these issues start to, to become more important. And that's not a weird, it's not a crazy question. Antarctica, I think, is going to be a free-for-all in, say, 50 years. And um, uh, I mean, I don't know, we could talk about the moon, right? So um, it's, I think it's an interesting question, what it takes to make something into a state versus just somebody's, somebody's private property.
1: There were some more hands up as well. Uh, yeah, right in the middle. Yes.
0: Uh, I was wondering, does the UN Charter specify special condition to be an independent country, uh, or it's more about consensus between states?
2: So I didn't really hear that.
0: Oh, uh, is there some speci- uh, special uh, condition to meet to be uh, an independent country in the UN Charter, or it's more about consensus between states that grants recognition to another state? Is there some uh, special terms to meet to be an independent country
1: I th- so could we perhaps sort of consult the UN are there some sort of rules that are there in the UN charter that we could just sort of check the, the state against to see if it's going to be an independent state or not, is that the question? Yeah. Yeah.
6: Yeah. do you know, the, I, I would say that's Dal Utiposiditis uh, oh, I, that? I, I think that the UN just says we're—you know the world is divided up, we're just going to keep it divided up the way that it is But I'm not an expert.
2: Somewhere in my rucksack I have got the uh, Article 1 of the UN Charter of 1945, but it would take me a little while to get it. My feeling is that it's useless, uh, and it's designed to be useless. Um, uh, If you gave very clear rules about the basis on which you could form a new state then lots of people would ingeniously set themselves about making sure they conform to those rules, and then you'd find it rather difficult to deny them that right. So, for example, it's very interesting, I I mean, just doing it from memory, they don't use the term nations. They use the term peoples, because peoples is a much vaguer term than nations. Everybody's a person, everybody's people, not everybody's nation. So they don't want any particular identity principle. Um, And, in fact there is, as I recall now, there's a preamble to that first article which establishes actually another principle as much more important than self-determination. Peace. Which is very understandable in 1945. And in fact, the justification that is often given for establishing a new state is that it will bring more peace. So the argument is that uh, because a particular area is under the rule of another state and it, it's in a state of rebellion uh, uh, or it wishes to ally with some other power, it will lead. it's more likely to lead to war. But the argument now is not about what these people themselves want. The argument is about what will suit the international community. And, and of course, the UN Charter also included the right for the General Assembly to debate these issues and vote on them, but it also included the absolute right, which continues to this day for the Security Council, to veto any decision that the little states make. So it's, it was really... I don't think there's a recipe. Can I?
1: Yeah, please. Um,
6: that just reminds me of something that I wanted to say. This is It's not a question, I just wanted to say it. Um, there are two philosophical positions on... Well, there's more than two, but there are two kind of big, warring, philosophical positions on the right to secession. Um, you can probably guess what they are. There's a very conservative position that matches uh, what we you know, um, think that the UN would want us to say, which is you only have the right to secession if it's the, the last remedy for very serious human rights. Uh, Violations. So if you're a minority and you're a little part of a state and you're just being pummeled by the majority and it looks like the only way to keep you from being pummeled is to give you independence, then, then under those conditions, but very extreme conditions, it's called the remedial right only uh, to secession because you only have the right if you, if you need a remedy. And then the other side is the democratic side, right? We see secession more as like a divorce, right? You got you got two adults. You wanted to live together for a while. You don't want to live together anymore, right? Even if one person wants you to stay, you don't have to stay. You can leave, right? That's just your right. Um, uh, it's, it's your uh, right as from freedom of association, okay? Freedom of association includes the right to associate. It also includes the right to disassociate. So... Um, you Two very extreme views, right? But the, what, what I wanted to say is that the people, uh, in particular, one really colorful philosopher called Kit Wellman argues that this worry that the, that the UN is holding on to, and the international commun- uh, community is holding on to about what did you call it? The um, escalation of secession, right? What really are you worried about? What is the worry? I mean, we've got Liechtenstein, right? Are we worried about size? Are we worried about, right? So assuming that we could do things peacefully, which is, of course, the big assumption, maybe, you know, we can't do things peacefully. But really, what is wrong with lots and lots of small states? What's wrong with that? Um, so I just, I wanted to point that out. I mean, that's a really interesting, I think, philosophical, but also practical question. What's wrong with small states? Why, what's wrong with the escalation?
1: Right, there's a lot of hands. It's escalating here. There's <laughs> somebody waving at me here in, in light blue.
0: What do you think about the Free State Project?
1: <laughs> I think you you'd elaborate. better say a <laughs> few words in, in about Hampshire? what that
0: is. In New Hampshire? In the US? No? Still no? Okay. Tell um, us what it is. Yeah, so it's about 2,000 people immigrated to uh, New Hampshire to form this new minimum anarcho-capitalist state. They want to secede from the U.S. and sort of have their own state. There are few groups that are trying to do the same in Europe. I think they bought some land somewhere um, and are trying to do sort of similar, just smaller scale
1: so perhaps this is one for Cara would that extreme sort of democratic view commit us to that as long as you've got a group of people that club together and take a vote on it okay, isn't so that okay
6: on this extreme which I actually don't uh, agree with this extreme view but on this extreme view that would be perfectly okay Yeah, if, if, if you're living in a place and the, you know the people, enough of the people around you want to secede and you can make it work you can be a Liechtenstein. So you won't you know, be requiring all... You know, you'll be able to uh, be sufficiently self-sufficient, I guess, which I mean, you'll have to figure out exactly what that means. You can secede.
2: Uh, I mean, I think, as an historian, again, I, I ask myself, why do the kind of states we have exist? Is it just an accident? It's not an accident. It's to do with... the. basically the generalisation of early modern Europe, a set of competing states, to the rest of the world through their competing empires and then the decolonisation of their empires. And those states are there for the specific things that they did. Um, uh, So it's interesting, as I understand it, the Free States Movement, for example, is extremely neoliberal. So if you believe in a welfare state, it's difficult to imagine how you can have really, really tiny states. And part of the way states became significant for most people is the gradual accumulation of important services that those states performed for people. So uh, Richard Titmuss, years ago, described modern British history as establishing legal equality in the 17th century, increasing political rights in the 18th and early 19th century, social rights in the early 20th century, old age pensions, unemployment benefit and so on, and then... Uh, moving finally to certain kinds of cultural rights uh, that have become increasingly important. And this is also, I think, the problem with the question of where do you draw the boundaries? What is the collective unit that will actually make these rights uh, realise something? So I think you can have exceptional cases, like fuzzy borders in some areas, international rivers, um, but we see what happens when we do get tiny states or states which can't enforce these rights, we call them failed states. And nobody wants to live in a failed state. We're stuck with a world primarily of territorial states. The other thing is, why was it after 1918 that the principle of national self-determination made possible many new small states? I would argue because the principle of imperialism changed. The USSR, and particularly the USA, didn't feel it needed formal colonies in order to exercise power over the parts of the world. But it still exercised powers over other parts of the world. But the other parts of the world were much less capable of resisting those powers because they didn't have their own independent states. Or they had states which are just a fiction. I mean, one of the problems, of course, about a lot of the states that exist in the United Nations is they are a fiction. And it's a fiction that mainly their own citizens have to pay for. That's an argument again.
1: Now, there's a lot of hands and we've got about five minutes left. So what I'm going to do is take just three questions and I'll take them in a row, if you could be as brief as possible, and then I'll invite our two panellists uh, to comment. Uh, there's one right here. Yeah. Uh, there's you. And then we'll go to yourself. Uh, so the first one is the gentleman up top.
8: Thank you. Uh, my question is for Cara. I have a question about your, the democratic account of um, the territorial right because I was thinking even if the whole population democratically agree that a state should be able to secede, uh, the next generation of people obviously didn't vote on that. And so, for example, let's say, I mean, I know no history at all, but let's say it did happen that a few generations ago England, English people and UK people voted for England and Scotland to merge together together that decision democratically doesn't seem to hold anymore because the people who voted on it no longer exist. And me, who does exist, um, never voted on it. So wouldn't the democratic account imply that you should keep having constant referendums on uh, whether your uh, state should, should retain its right to have a territorial, um, be recognised as a Great. territorial independent Thank state? Thank
1: you. Let's go here. Hi.
5: I've heard about few states, we were talking about um, Scotland, uh, Kosovo. I was wondering um, I don't know how much knowledge do you have about the case of the Western Sahara which is the last um, non-self governing territory in Africa and it counts with the International Court of Justice ruling, with the United Nations uh, international law, blah 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 blah, but yet it's still a colony in 2016 and it's the last non-self governing territory in Africa. So I was just wondering how much of Realpolitik, does it play in the right to be an independent state since that the Western Sahara has been one of the quote-unquote most legal countries in the world since we've never violated any international law. We've signed a ceasefire agreement, waited for 40 years. No referendum has happened. Now the people are starting to ask, should we return to to arms? Should we wait for the right to be an independent state that has been promised for 40 years and never came? So just wondering in that
1: note... Thank you, and then our final question was from the gentleman in the second row. Thank you. I was just wondering, uh, what role do you think culture, and more specifically uh, political culture, plays in sort of this question, the right to be an independent state? Because you brought up the example of Spain, and I think specifically if you look at regions like Catalonia and the Basque Country, they've got very, very uh, rich histories, histories that, uh, that are marked by autonomy. Uh, and you look at other regions, perhaps, like Navarre or Galicia, where there's not such a pronounced political culture. Do you think that
7: uh, should play a, an important role in deciding whether or not a state should be uh, independent? Thank you.
1: Okay, thanks very much. Well, let's perhaps start with you, Cara, on the question about uh, democracy. Does each generation have to decide uh, again and again?
6: Yeah, I'm, I, I don't think that that would be the case on the democratic view, but it would be the case on the social contract view. Um, so those are both freedom of choice Views, right. So the democratic view is just going to say, look, um, any law that you bring into place or any decision we bring into place is going to be uh, binding on this community going forward. So there are lots of laws, right, that you probably weren't of age to vote for that are still binding on you, right. And we think in a democratic community, you don't have to have brought those into into being, right. Uh, but they still apply to you. So that's. But the social contract view is different because the rules only bind you if you actually agreed to it. So that's why it would be true on the social contract view but not on the democratic view.
1: Thanks. Um, John, would you like to talk about the culture question?
5: What yeah, I, I'm, I'm afraid I'm
2: going to duck the Westerns out because I just don't know. I don't know either. Yet. I just, d- just don't know enough <laughs> <laughs> about, so that's about in Africa, it. So the way. Uh, just look it up. Yeah, Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, Political culture. The the problem is, I mean, quite what we mean by political culture. I mean, it's it's even moved from an individual identity issue to perhaps the way in which people conduct political affairs. And one can differ about that. I remember once, I I was at um, some years back, I was at a conference in Santiago de Compostela. And somebody said to me, a a Spaniard, and I have no idea whether what he was talking was complete tosh, but he said, when you come into Galicia, you can see that Galicians are different from Castilians. But when you go into Catalonia, it's not so obvious that Catalans are very different from Castilians. But Galicia is one of the most loyalist parts of Spain, whereas Catalonia is the most rebellious Part of Spain, so even uh, shared politi- shared culture at least doesn't necess- uh, doesn't necessarily mean you uh, want to live together politically, and and different culture doesn't mean say that you want to live um, separately. Uh, it's very difficult. To, uh, w- one of the big problems that um, in 1918-19, for the most part. Wilson wanted his experts to decide where the boundaries should be drawn. But in some cases, he thought, actually, it might be worth asking the people. And they had some really peculiar cases where Polish-speaking people said they wanted to be in Germany. They hadn't expected that. Um, so sometimes the political culture or any kind of cultural argument contradicts the democratic argument, which which principle you use can produce different, different things. The final thing I just wanted to say is that Neither Wilson nor Lenin ever imagined these issues about national self-determination could be understood simply in their own right. For for Lenin, it always had to be part of the move towards international socialism, and for Wilson, it always had to be be linked to freedom of trade, uh, peace, the League of Nations and the Covenant. In other words, they never imagined you could solve most of your problems just through the principle of how you establish a state.
1: Thanks. Now, before we finish, um, I would like to just return to this question of the Western Sahara fight, if I may. I'm sorry we don't know very much about the details, but if I understood you correctly, um, it sounds as though you're imagining uh, or describing a case um, where people have gone through the correct political channels or they've done things right sort of from a normative perspective, and yet they're not getting recognition. You're saying sort of when is a bit of realpolitik sort of uh, appropriate and when could people perhaps use force or even violence or when would that be, I mean perhaps that's a sort of philosophical question that could be addressed without commenting too much on on the specifics, could you have a case where a country has a vote or does everything right in principle and yet isn't accorded sovereignty in which case what do you do (laughs)
6: <laughs> um, it's a really difficult question because uh, my, my own view I'm, I disagree with democratic theorists my own view is that a lot depends on uh, the way that the institutions have been established and whether or not the institutions are working well uh, and who is running those institutions so um, I'm just talking about the right to say like, look, I don't care if you agree or not, we're just demanding secession right now. So I think that right, if, if it, it's would be tr- uh, apply in this case, if the institutions run by um, the West Saharans, is that correct? Um, the West Saharans, the institutions are mainly run by them, mostly independently, they're run well. Uh, and um, the, uh, and the people <coughs> really do want independence. Um, um, so, so, my view of how to understand the, the people is their relationship to the institutions that are already in place. right? So, if they have the proper sort of relationships with these institutions, can we say that they're the people? Um, then I think that there is a unilateral right to secede in that case. I don't know if any of those things are true. All, all of them but, are true. Um, so, th- so then I'd say, y- uh, you know, try to do it peacefully, and then if that doesn't work out, you have to examine your options.
1: <laughs> okay, well idea. then, on, on that uh, revolutionary note, then I think we will thank uh, both of our panelists, and thanks to our audience for some excellent questions. <laughs> thank you.